The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, on this day in which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son, we give you thanks for all the gifts you give us. The gifts of community, a body of Christ, his chosen people gathered together around the presence of the Lord to receive gifts. Gifts through word, gifts through meal, gifts of joining together as his people. Be with us now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, nice to be with you. And nice to have a chance to teach Bible class. I don't get to teach Bible class that often, which is great. And the topic couldn't be better. He asked me, would you like to teach on table fellowship? Well, I think he knew that I spent five years thinking about table fellowship. That's what I wrote my thesis on. So I'm going to try to condense a lot of what I've been thinking about or thought about. And I, actually, I haven't talked about this in a long time until two weeks ago, where the Rocky Mountain District asked me to come out and talk about table fellowship and closed communion one of those non-controversial topics, you know? <laughs> but I understand you've been talking about hospitality, too, and there's a wonderful connection between the two. And I want to start with some resources, because I'm, I'm, I like, you know, sharing resources. My daughter, who you know, went to Valpo. And at Valpo, there was um, a man who was the head of Christ College there by the name of Mark Schwain, and his wife is, is a woman called Dorothy Bass, and she has done some, some really nice books. Uh, and they're, they're related to community. This one is the foundational book called Practicing Our Faith. Its uh, subtitle is A Way of Life for Searching People. And um, it has chapters like this, um, Times of Yearning, Practices of Faith, Honoring the Body, Hospitality, a household economics, saying yes and saying no, keeping Sabbath, things like that, shaping communities, forgiveness, healing, dying well, all written by various authors. V very nicely done. Some are more you know, uneven than others, but generally speaking, it's a good, solid book. Um, I don't know who this woman is, although I've read a good chunk of this book. Each chapter then was spun out into a book. And this is the book on hospitality, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality, as a Christian tradition by Christine Pohl. And um, I, I think she has some, you know, she does a lot with the church fathers. She talks about the history of hospitality in the Christian church. It's, it's a very, I think this is a very strong book in many ways. And is, if I pass it around, will I get them back? No. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You can take a look at them. Um, I've lost so many books over the years, it doesn't matter. Books are good to give away. Now, this is a guy who I've come to know over the years. He's a New Testament scholar, and he's, he's really a good guy. This is, this is an old book, but it's one that I read many years ago when I was working on my doctorate. It's New Testament hospitality. You can see this is a topic that people write about. Partnership with strangers as promise and mission. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty rigorous book, but um, it's got a lot of good stuff, and it, it is related to table fellowship. Then this John Koenig is his name, or Koenig, Koenig. Then he really did a sophisticated book. I have not read this one. This is hot off the press. This is called The Feast of the World's Redemption, Eucharistic Origins, and Christian Mission. Combination of hospitality, table fellowship, and mission. And he's, I think he's a Lutheran, so he's, he's done some really nice things. He, he, he sort of gets it. 
And then I couldn't find other books by this guy, but he's, I know this guy very well. He's a, he's a charmer, Robert Karras. And I love this. This is a new book. It's a popular book. It's called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, which I think is kind of clever. Um, he did a lot of books on Luke and hospitality uh, and table fellowship, oh, 20, 25 years ago. And I think he's in retirement, and he decided to write a quick book. But this is a nice little thing. I just, just skimmed it this week in preparation for speaking to you. Now, there are just some. I could have brought stacks. I, I was... I was um, judicious in what I brought. Um, As some of you know, I I run a deaconess program now, and one of the things that is very important for our women who are studying to be deaconesses is to embody hospitality. I think that's something that deaconesses can bring to a congregation. And and we try to model it, although I'm probably not as good at it as I should be, but we try to show hospitality to them. And um, hospitality has always been something I've, I've spent time thinking about and talking about. And it's interesting that you're doing a Bible study on community because I, I didn't have a chance to talk to pastor about this on the way, but I, didn't, I wasn't thinking these thoughts when I was a pastor in Connecticut, but the one thing that occurred to me when I was there is that they were not a community. When I became a pastor in 1980, they were a broken church. They needed to be community. They needed to understand themselves as a people who are bound together in Christ. And it is one of the most important topics you could study. And I did tell Pastor this, and we did not share notes on this, but I wanted to start with Emmaus, which is what I actually wrote my doctoral thesis on, because there's that really interesting statement by the Emmaus disciples. While they're walking along with Jesus, you know the story, and they don't know who he is. And you know, they're talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, what things? And they're, they're, they stand there sorrowful, and they say to him, are you the only, and, and I looked at the NIV, which always seems to get it wrong, visitor, it's not visitor, the word there is stranger or alien, stranger, who does not know the things that have happened in Israel. And I spent time in my thesis talking about how, how Jesus is an alien, a stranger, And, you know, it's an interesting concept. The the thing about the Emmaus disciples is they say all the right things, but they don't get it. That that kind of sums us up, isn't it? You know, if we're operating in darkness, if our eyes are closed, we, we might say all the right things, but if we don't have God's, you know, opening our eyes, we don't get it. And, and they don't get it. Yet that statement is right. Jesus is a stranger. And that got me thinking, and it actually launched me on a whole way of thinking about how the incarnation itself is where you see Jesus as an alien coming from another place. He is the ultimate alien. He comes from another world. He enters into our cosmos that is inhospitable because of our sin. And the reason Jesus comes is to make this place hospitable again by making it new, bringing in a new creation. And part of the test, so to speak, of those that he comes to is, are they going to be hospitable to him? And look what they do to him. They crucify him. That's the expression of their hospitality to this alien 
this stranger who comes in. Now, you know, this is a big concept in the Old Testament. You know, the, the, the Jews talk about the strangers or the aliens in your midst and how you need to be hospitable to them. And then, of course, the Jews have this sense of being aliens and strangers when they're in exile. They have a real heightened sense of that. And then you know how Paul speaks of Christians as being aliens and strangers in the world. So there's this, this, this sense of how because we are not, you know, we are in the world but not of the world, we are, in fact, aliens and strangers. And hospitality is absolutely critical. Now, some of you travel like I do, and some of you may travel to foreign lands. Um, there is nothing better than being greeted by a friendly face when you get off the plane in Khartoum, Sudan, at 3 in the morning. Man, I'll tell you, when I saw Bishop Andrew, who was a student of mine, standing there, and it was unusual, he came right there at the plane, at the bottom of the steps, I felt like, a, I mean, there, I know a face, you know, and this is a hostile Muslim, anti-Christian environment, and there he is, the bishop, you know, with his wife at 3 in the morning. Now that's hospitality, boy, <laughs> let me tell you. You know, I spent with two of my colleagues, and I, maybe, maybe Scott has had a similar, two and a half hours in a little room in Moscow, <laughs> you know, in the airport, because we had the wrong visa. And I'll tell you, there was nothing like the hospitality of having our friends from, uh, from the church there come and see us there. Boy, was that a wonder, and then bring us through the, you know, that, that's hospitality. You know, and that, that sense of being an alien or a stranger, I think we've all experienced at some time or another. Now, that's not my topic. My topic is table fellowship. But the expression of hospitality is most clearly expressed at the table. Now, that is, that is a deeply embedded, not just biblical concept, but a human one. And you, 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 any culture you go to, Eating is central, or it should be, except our culture, to a certain extent. We've, we've kind of perverted eating, have we not? You know, I mean, and I don't need to go into that, because you get it. Eating together, I mean, this is, what, this is one of the things that, that my dear wife really tried hard with our family. And when the kids got to high school, it was harder, but we always tried to eat dinner together. And I know some of you do the same thing. It's very important. And one of the things about eating together, and this is, this, is a, this is a biblical concept. It's a first century Jesus concept, but I think you can identify with this. It should be clear to you, is that when you sit down at table, it's not just about eating. It's about talking. That's one of the reasons why we've perverted eating, is that it's not just that you sit there to st stuff your face, but it's an opportunity for you to exchange, to have communion with one another by means of table talk. Now, those are technical things in table fellowship in the first century. If you have a formal meal, whether you're a Greek or a Jew, you just don't sit down and eat. You always precede it by some sort of table talk, and oftentimes it's teaching. It's a formal kind of lecture or some sort of, of, of um, symposium, you know, seminar type of thing. If you're a Greek, if you're Jesus, you get to hear from him. Now, we do it, sort of. You know, you have a banquet, and what do we have? We have an after-dinner speaker, you know? That's the hardest thing to do in the world for me, is to do one of those. I haven't done many. In fact, the first one I did was just about five years ago. It was with a whole bunch of Lutherans. Lutheran, uh, the, 
the Society of the Holy Trinity, I don't know if you've heard of them, wonderful group. And I got up there and I said, this is the first time, because I've studiously avoided the after-dinner speech. That's the hardest thing to do, I think. I'd rather preach to thousands than do an after-dinner speech. And I started out by saying, you know, this is the first time I've done this, because I'm, I'm really, you know, it's to make jokes and, you know, that kind of thing, and then try to get into something serious. It's a hard, it's a hard. So right after this little introduction, one of the members of this group had a heart attack right there in the room, you know? <laughs> I mean, he really did. And so we had to stop, and the whole, they said, really, you, you're really trying to avoid this, you know? <laughs> he was fine, but it was fine. We had to actually move to the church. It was kind of a funny thing. But you, you, you understand, it was, it's after dinner for us. In the ancient world, it was before dinner. Because the table talk kind of tilled the ground, created the community that was then expressed in an intimate, really almost kind of incarnational, sacramental way with the food, with the meal, the actual eating of it. And, and that, that table talk, and then that eating, that's table fellowship. And that would sometimes take hours, hours, you know? And it was, it was a slow, luxurious process, and it didn't happen every day. Because these would be considered like feasts. And feasts are not every day. Now, there's some wonderful stuff. I should have brought this, too. I wasn't thinking of it. There's a wonderful book by Joseph Pieper. Uh, He's a, a, a German philosopher and a Roman Catholic. Do you know, Scott? Joseph Pieper. He did a book called In Tune with the World. It's wonderful. It's a little dense, but it's very short. It's theories of festivity. And it, it's, it's absolutely on target. He does a lot of think, thinking about the difference between work and play, between feasting and kind of everyday stuff. And feasting is always out of the ordinary. You know, your workaday world, you go through your routine, and what a feast is, is stepping back out of, out of the world, so to speak, and doing things that you normally don't do. And one of the, one of the kind of the, the, um, the characteristics of feasting is, is that you, it's a little bit excessive. You eat a little bit too much. You, you stay up a little later. You may even... Drink a little too much. You have a little too much fun because it's not the normal day. And, and so it doesn't happen often. And that's, and that's the way Jews understood table fellowship. Table fellowship was not every day. I mean, you'd eat with your family every day, but there were certain times, certain moments of feasting. And you know, they had their four or five big feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, things like that. And... Um, and, and these were occasions in which they celebrated not only their communion with each other, but most importantly, how their communion with each other was founded on their communion with God. Now let me, let me, let me talk about it in terms of the Old Testament, and then let's move right into the New Testament, because how long do we go to? Eleven-ish? Oh my goodness. Okay, real fast then. Isn't it interesting that the Old Testament begins in Genesis with a meal gone bad? <laughs> right? I mean, it does. And how does it end? How does, the, how does the Bible end? With the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. 
And then standing there as the kind of the guiding principle is the book of Hebrews, which is about what it is that we feast on. And this, you've got to have right or you're not going to get it. It's sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, sacrifice, you know, the Abraham sacrifice, when they, they cut the animal in half, you all know cutting of a covenant? Put the two animal sides next to each other, and then if you and I are making a covenant, a human covenant, I walk through, and then you walk through, and then what we say to each other is, if we break the covenant, we can cut each other in half, just like that animal. And then, of course, all of you from the 60s will love this. You know, you know in Genesis, with Abraham's covenant, what is it that goes through the middle? I love the translations. Smoking pot. A smoking pot? <laughs> a smoking pot, which is, a, which is a sign of God. God is the one. It's a unilateral covenant. You know? Now, when you have a sacrifice and you get two pieces of, of, of you know, of, a, of a, a bull down there on the ground, or a calf, you just don't let it sit there and rot. What do you do? You eat it. You roast it. So whenever there's sacrifice, there's a meal. You know, you know those, those, those priests in the temple who are constantly offering up the, you know, the Holocaust and then the bloody sacrifices? Any food that was left over, they ate it. They ate very well. They ate very well, the priests in the temple. And you know the pagans. The pagans had their sacrifices and their table fellowship, and that was even better than any food you could get anywhere else. And you know the whole issue with Paul, meat sacrifice to idols. Okay. So you have to understand that for, for Jews, especially as they celebrated it at the Passover Seder, which was the big meal, it's all about sacrifice. It's all about blood. It's all about eating the sacrificial lamb. Which is why when Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 22, verse 14, it is necessary for us to sacrifice the Pascha, which means Passover lamb. He's not only talking about the Passover lamb that they're going to have at the, at the Passover, he's talking about himself. Now, I don't know how I'm going to do this in 20 minutes, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, here, here's the deal with the Jews. The big meal was Passover. Once a year, family meal. Okay? And it had to be in Jerusalem, because that's where you got your lamb. And you went to the temple, and, and at the time of Jesus, there's about 100,000 pilgrims. So say, figure a meal, family meals, about 10 people. Okay, just, you know, 10,000 lambs are huddled in the, in the court there, outside the temple. So remember how Jesus sends, you know, who he sends, Peter, and, is it Peter and John? Remember to prepare the upper room? They go to the temple, they get a lamb, they get in line for their lamb. The lamb is sacrificed, the blood they catch in a bowl, and then they have this bucket brigade of priests going up into the, right outside the holy place where they dump the, the blood. Now, you can imagine what kind of day that is, sacrificing 10,000 lambs, all those people there, all that blood. There, there is, a, there is a, a first century, you know, probably know Josephus, who talks about right outside the temple there's a little river Kidron, and the little boys would sit there and take bets when the river was going to run pink from all the blood of the Passover lambs that was done. Now, what would they do? They'd go home, and the paterfamilias, the head of the household, would have a very, very formal liturgy. You know, he'd bless God, bless the day, bless cup. Then they'd set the table with food. 
And then here's the teaching at the table. The paterfamilias would explain the food. Why is the bread unleavened? Because of the haste of our journey of our fathers. Why are the herbs bitter? Because of the bitterness of our journey. Why is there a lamb? Because of the blood and the Passover of the angel of death that preserved our, our children. And, and, and there's more food. I mean, it would just, they just set the table, and they'd all, they'd all sit there and, and listen to him explain the food. Now, they knew what the food meant. They'd been hearing this for years. But this was the ritual. This was the meal. This was the teaching. And then what would he do? He would tell the whole story again and interpret it for him. You know, why did we have to leave Egypt? What happened when we came through the Red Sea? What happened in the wilderness? What happened when we got to the Promised Land? The whole story of the Exodus. This is the teaching at the table by the paterfamilias. And when that was over, he takes a cup and he toasts the Exodus. He says, here's to the Exodus. Blessed are you, Lord God. And they all drink their cup. And then he takes the bread, he breaks it, blesses it, gives it out, and that's the beginning of the meal. And then after the supper, he takes another cup, the cup of blessing, toasts it. This is the grace after the meal. It's called, there's a technical word for it, the birkat hamatzon. And he would thank God for creation. He would bless God, you know, he would bless God for creation. He would thank God for the redemption. And he would petition God to keep on saving in Jerusalem. Now there's a quick rendition of the Passover. And every Friday night, Every Friday night after sundown, which is really the Sabbath, the Jews would gather together in their little homes all over Israel. And you know what they would do? They'd do a mini Passover. They wouldn't do a Passover, because that's only once a year. But they would do a meal that would use the same structure. So they would bless the day, which is the Sabbath. They would bless a cup. And then they'd go right to the breaking of the bread. They'd bless the bread, break it, and have the meal. And after the meal, they'd have a cup, and they'd have the grace after the meal unless they invited somebody like Jesus to come and have the Sabbath evening Seder with them. So after that first cup and that first blessing of the day, they would invite Jesus to speak. And if you read the New Testament, Robert Karras says this, he said, I don't think he's totally right, but he's, I think he's close. Jesus is either going to a meal, Jesus is at a meal, or he's coming away from a meal. And that's Luke's Gospel. And what you see in the teaching of Jesus is Jesus being invited by Pharisees and others to come and sit down at table at Friday night, which was a mini Passover, and then, of course, to have Passover with his disciples, especially on the night in which he was betrayed. Now, you know why they had that Passover, mini Passover on Fridays? To remember the blood, to remember the sacrifice, to remember what Passover meant. How many former Roman Catholics here? Oh, yeah, okay, good. Do you remember not eating meat on Friday? Okay, why? <laughs> why didn't you eat meat on Friday? Was this because, you know, you wanted to give the, the fishmongers a, a good day? Yeah, it was, what is Friday? We call this Friday good. It's Good Friday. You remember, you're supposed to not eat meat on Friday to remember the atonement. Remember, this was the day Jesus died. It's fasting. It's, a, it's, it's to remember the blood of Jesus. Now, how many remember that? Well, not many. But that was the point. Where do you think they got it from? They got it from the Jews. It's a way of remembering in the context of a meal or in food 
the sacrifice. It's all about sacrifice. Now, on the night in which Jesus is betrayed, it's a Passover. It says it over and over again. This is the Pascha, the Pascha, the Pascha. But Jesus does something that had never been done before. And I think it's important to recognize that up until this point, Jesus, as I said, has not only been celebrating meals week in and week out, but he's been offending the, the, the religious establishment by the people he's been eating with. Now, again, I, there's not enough time for this, but there are all these laws that the Jews are, you know, and one of the laws is, is, is kinship laws, who is a Jew and who is not a Jew. Big, important thing. Because determining who is a Jew and who is not a Jew determines if you can go to synagogue, if you can go to temple, if you can have table fellowship. Purity laws, clean and unclean. Are you clean or are you not clean? It depends on, on your kinship, your bloodlines. Depends upon your occupation. Depends upon your physical condition. There are all kinds of physical maladies that keep you from having table fellowship. And of course, the, the worst thing is if you're a sinner. Tax collectors and sinners, you know that. Prostitutes, you know, all these maimed, lame, broken people. Those are the people that Jesus eats with. And if you look at the New Testament, there are two groups, basically. There are the tax collectors and sinners and all that they, and then there's the religious establishment, the holy guys, the Pharisees. And Jesus will eat with both of them but he has one criteria, and that is repentance and faith in him. Radical, a radical Christology. You see, see Jesus is the Messiah, and you, and you completely repent of your ability to save yourself. And Jesus, eating with tax and collectors and sinners, and again, this is Robert Karras' thesis, is one of the reasons, if not the reason, why he gets himself killed. One of the reasons he gets himself killed is because of the people he eats with. And just read the New Testament. You'll see, well, you know, why are you eating with these people? Now, there's an inclusivity there to Jesus, you know. And, and the inclusivity is, is, is not that there aren't boundaries. There's a simple boundary, and that is Jesus. Do you see Jesus as the Holy One of God? Do you see Jesus now as the new temple? Do you see Jesus as the one who is coming to bring life to the world? And do you confess that he is the Pascha? Now you know there was a lot of trouble in Corinthians over the, over the Lord's Supper, remember that? And that's why in the second letter to them, Paul says very clearly that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That is the, that's the confession. That is the ticket to enter into the table, to confess that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that embodies a lot of things. We don't have time to go into it. That's what I did that conference on in Rocky Mountain District. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Passover lamb? There's a lot that goes on there. That's a, that's a very huge confession to make. Let me close by talking about the Passover, and, and I think you'll get a sense of of how table fellowship is different now with Jesus. Um, and, and one of the things that I want to say about Jesus' table fellowship is this. Jesus adds a third element. There's teaching at the table. There's eating at the table. And I know this seems obvious, but 
it needs to be said. And there's Jesus. There's the presence of the Word made flesh. You know, all along in the Old Testament, the Passover and the Sabbath evening saviors, Seder was that Jesus is coming. Now he's there. Here's the stranger, the alien, now sitting among them. And what Jesus is showing them, especially in his embrace of the broken ones, is he's showing the ultimate expression of God's hospitality, the intimacy of sitting down at table with sinners and eating with them. And the question is, how are they going to receive him? That's really the question. Now, in the Last Supper, it's not a Passover in any sense of what went before or what will go after. I call it Jesus' Passover. It's unique. Because now Jesus takes his place as host. There are three times that Jesus is host. Feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper in the upper room, and Emmaus. The only three times you can see where Jesus is not guest, but host. And everything Jesus does now at that Passover is about him. Why is the bread unleavened? Because of the haste of my journey to the cross. Why are the herbs bitter? Because of the bitterness of my suffering. Who is the Passover lamb? I am the Passover lamb. He takes the entire Exodus story now and he talks about it in terms of himself. How he's doing in the Exodus of his, ex and this is Lucan language, his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. He's doing what Israel could not do. And then the cup of the, the redemption, you know, this is a toast to his own death. And then, and this is something that maybe you don't know, and of course this is something which is a radical interpretation. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Now that would have been an enormous scandal to them, to eat the flesh, you know. And then, this is what you wouldn't know, after the supper, you know, they, they sat down and ate then. I don't know if you know that, but they sat down and ate the whole meal. And after the supper, he takes the cup, not the cup of redemption, interestingly, but the cup of blessing. And how do we know that? What does Paul say? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion with the blood of Christ? And he takes that cup and he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Again, a scandal, even more so, drinking blood. You know the whole blood thing with the Jews. That's, you know, big scandal. Remember, remember James in the Apostolic Council? Don't eat meat strangled in blood. You know? And now they're drinking the blood of God. I mean, they, they would have had been clueless as to what was going on there. And it's only after the resurrection at Emmaus where he does the same thing, teaches them on the road. And then when they get to Emmaus, you can look at the language yourself. Um, I would look at it if we had time, but it's the same constellation of words that are at the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and Emmaus. Those are all the same constellation of words because it's a meal. But it's a new meal now. And Jesus is there, resurrected Lord, and in with and under bread and wine. Now I want to give you a quick second for questions here. One final statement about table fellowship. Um, all of this is simply a rehearsal for what heaven is like. Heaven is described as a marriage feast, 
of the Lamb and his kingdom that has no end. And in most cases, most cultures, people resonate to that. They resonate to the fact that heaven is going to be just one great feast in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. And what we do here now, and, I, and I, it is a foretaste, but it's even more than that. We're participating in the heavenly feast right now. Because Christ is here, wherever Christ is, there's heaven. The angels are here, that's what we say, they are. The archangels, and all the saints are here with us in Christ, and we're with them. So we're already now in the heavenly feast. So if you want to know what it's all about, it's about eating. It's about eating. And it's the number one expression of hospitality and intimacy. And that's why, from the beginning, Christians have done word and sacrament, which is simply table fellowship with God. Christ's presence in word. We, again, that's a place to go to. What does it mean that Christ is present in his word? And then present, of course, in the sacrament of the altar. We got a few time, quite, I want to give time for questions. Any comments or questions? Yes, sir. Uh, you, didn't, you brought up closed communion. Yes. <laughs> closed communion? Well, you know, there, there's, there's a passage in Luke's gospel that speaks about it. Right after the institution of the supper, Jesus goes into five dialogues with his disciples. And one of them, it's the third dialogue, he says to them, you are those who participated with me in my trials kind of ask, you know, when did they do that? You know, and it's kind of a foretaste of not only that they were with him during his ministry, but they will continue after Acts to be, in a sense, those who keep the suffering of Jesus going. Where you see the suffering of the apostles, you see the suffering of Jesus. And then he says to them this. <clears throat> he says, and it's present tense, I am appointing to you a kingdom just as my father appointed to me a kingdom that you sit, on the 12 tro uh, tw you sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the language there is, um, is that, that they, are to be, they are to be judged, as the, the judges, as people come to the table, that you will eat and drink with me in my kingdom, and you will sit on these thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Same language that Corinthians uses that the disciples are given just really, in a sense, you could call it church discipline, I think office of the keys, that they have the power to forgive and to retain, and that one can enter into the presence of God unworthily, and that this can be to your, your, your judgment. And as Paul says, some of you are going to get sick and some of you are going to die. In other words, just like the Jews had their boundaries to the holy places, there are, are still boundaries, even though we all have access to Jesus. And that is that you come to him in repentance and faith, confessing the true faith. Now here's how early Christians did it, just so you have a sense. And this is where the word closed comes from. After the preaching of the word. So you have the reading of the word, after the preaching of the word. And you, you, we have it now, we call it the prayers of the faithful. But they had what were called the prayers of dismissal. Dismissal. The word dismissal in the Latin, misa, that's where the word mass comes from. Mass, believe it or not. And in the early communities, you know, when they had the body of Christ, they would have 
four groups there. They would have the baptized. They would have those who were preparing for baptism. They were called catechumens. They would have penitents who had committed a public sin and were in a state of preparation to be restored to community. And then they would have, for lack of a better word, they would have the heterodox. And the heterodox were those who confessed something publicly contrary to the teaching of the church. So you've got four groups, baptized, those who aren't yet baptized, penitents who are baptized but public sin, heterodox who are baptized, public confession against the church. And what they do is they would dismiss each group with prayer. So they'd pray over the catechumens that they might come to baptism and they would, be, they would leave. They'd pray over the penitents that through repentance they would be restored to the church so they could join the faithful at the table. They would leave. They would pray over the heterodox, same thing, and they would leave. And then guess what they do? Closed the doors. That's really what they did. In fact, in the ancient liturgy, there was a place there that said, the doors, the doors. Which means, did the deacons close the doors because they can't come in? And in the Eastern Church here, go to an Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Church, and you will hear it at this part of the liturgy, the deacon yells, the doors, the doors. Now, they probably don't do that anymore, but that's in the liturgy. And then guess what they would do? The baptized, who were worthy and prepared to go into the Holy of Holies, which is what the altar was. They would exchange a kiss, the kiss of peace. Men were on this side, women were on this side. Okay? So the men would kiss each other, and the women would kiss each other. This was a sign of reconciliation. It was, it was a sign that only the baptized could do, and it wasn't a cultural phenomenon. This wasn't the culture just was friendly and affectionate. This was something the gospel gave them the freedom to do. And after the kiss of peace, then they were ready to go into the Holy of Holies, into the place of God's presence, and have table fellowship with God. They were very tight around who could go and who could not. And we have always been. That is, that is, that's closed communion. There's a historical, and there are other passages in the New Testament which we could go into, but I think the one in Luke is the best one. Same word for judge there is the one in Corinthians too. So. Good question. Any others? Yes? You were. That was a Reformation thing that started at the Reformation. Up until the time of the Reformation, um, there was not a significant Orthodox Christian. I mean, there was no service without the Lord's Supper. So, yeah. What do you think is the most winning way to communicate close communion to Christians who uh, don't hold to you know, our sacramental view, but it's just a way to communicate that without it being Well, you know, this was the big question we had at this conference. I think it's how the whole church is. I mean, I don't think there's one way to do it. I think it's how you constitute your entire community. So it's the preaching, it's the way you do liturgy, it's the reverence you have to the holy things, you know? And I think it's, 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 it's really teaching the minute people come in. Now, th this is, this is a, a good question, because the people who have trouble with close communion are other Christians. There are other Christians. And it's mostly other Christians who do not understand 
our Christology. Most Roman Catholics actually, I don't want to say most, but most Roman Catholics don't have trouble with this, or the Eastern Orthodox. So who are we talking about? Other Lutherans, maybe some Episcopalians, and then other Protestants. And they come with baggage. I will tell you one thing that I have never, I mean, and may maybe I, pa pastors can, but I, and I, I say this in a conference, so I ask pastors, have you ever come an un, uh, across an unchurched person who has any trouble with closed communion? And they say no, because unchurched people don't, I mean, they, don't, they just don't want to do the wrong thing, you know? It's people who have Christian baggage, who think they're entitled to the altar, and, and they don't realize that, there's, that this is a complex thing. It's a fellowship issue. It's a, it's a unity issue. It's an issue of confessing a common faith and particularly confessing the bodily presence of Jesus. Go to any Roman Catholic church today, open, and I think it's true, I haven't done this in a while, but go to any Roman Catholic church today, open their missal, and you will see the finest closed communion statement in Christendom, I think. At least it used to be. Do I have time for a story? When I, I love telling this story because it illustrates this so beautifully. My doctoral father in England was a Roman Catholic. And he had retired by the time I went to do my exam. And I, I, went, I, went, I was at University of Durham. I went there to take my final oral exam. And whether I passed or failed, I was going to his house, where he was a priest now, retired priest, to either celebrate or commiserate. Okay? And it happened to be a weekend. And I, and I arrived, I'll never forget, on a Saturday morning, he met me at the train, and he was the dearest man. He just died this year. And um, he, was like, he was like a father. He was, and I was, I was like a son. I was his last doctoral student. And he's, he's, a, he's a classic, McHugh was his name. So he's, you know, kind of a classic, you know, and he couldn't cook to save his soul, but he tried. That night, we cooked the salmon, and we had, we had a wonderful bottle of wine. And the next day, we were going to go to his church. Now, all that night, I was in agony because I had to tell him, my dear friend, my doctoral father, that I couldn't commune with him. But I was a chicken. I waited. I went to bed. Next morning, we have breakfast. And I, I, I got to bite the bullet and tell him, you know? It's going to ruin everything. And, um, and, and you know, I didn't. He, he, he had his his place of bit, where, where he lived and the church were right next to each other. There was a little, you know, kind of, you know, little place you walk between. We're right there. We're just about to go into the, the you know, the sacristy. And I finally turned to him. It's, this is the moment of truth. And before I could say a thing, he says, he says, Arthur, I have been in agony the last two days. <laughs> and I, he said, would you please refrain from coming to the sacrament? <laughs> and I, at, at that lunch, we talked about closed communion. And he, he knew everything. He was one of those guys who knew everything. And he's the one who really told me. And he said, thank God there are still people who practice the historic practice of closed communion. Remember, up until the middle of the 20th century, you know, this was the practice of all Christians. And remember, even today, technically speaking, what is it? How many Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Missouri Synod Lutherans in the world? They all practice close communion. So you're talking 75% probably of Christendom. 
So it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty much a 20, 20th century phenomenon. And I think you just have to, have to you know, you just have to teach from the start. Uh, I mean, you, you don't want it to be where, you know, you got a, like a credit card, a Missouri Senate credit card, you got to come in and, you know, that it, it can't be a police state. And it is a pastoral practice. And I, I don't think it's, you have to be just a member of the Missouri Synod. I think if you confess the faith. But if you do that, then this is the place you commune. This is where you come. This is where you join. Do you want to confess this with us? Then you're welcome. Join us. We rejoice in that. It's time. Oh, yeah, Linda's giving me that. Okay. I, for her, I have to say something for her. You do that. All right, you do that. I can't do that. I'm not good at that. <laughs> Paul and John. We're doing Paul and John. That, no, just Turkey. Yeah. It is. It's great. Ephesus, phenomenal. Sorry to go so long. Let's do that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is a kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you.